vocabulary of our times. It's commonly heard from secular progressives voicing their political, social, and cultural concerns. The term is othering. By definition, othering refers to the process whereby an individual or groups of people attribute negative characteristics to other individuals or groups of people that set them apart as representing that which is opposite to them. You can tell I didn't write that, can't you? <laughs> Secular progressives, uh, writers, assert that othering undergirds territorial disputes, sectarian violence, military conflict, the spread of disease, hunger and food insecurity, and even climate change. Now that progressive laundry list may include some ideas that are a stretch, but the underlying premise is hard to deny. That is, that differences divide. Now, this idea of differences dividing is nothing new. The Apostle Paul, writing uh, in Colossians chapter 3, interestingly, the passage that Callista read for us earlier, speaks of some of the divisions common in the first century in which he lived and wrote. He wrote of the distinctions and differences between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. All of those identified in that book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. But while those differences divide, it's important to remember that love unites. Love unites us, first of all, in the love of Christ and our experience of the new birth, and then its implications for our Christian life together. For Paul also says in that Colossians text, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that in the renewal we experience in Christ, there is no distinction between these groups that often divide us. Further, he says in chapter 3, verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You see, division had created um, uh, significant conflicts and quarrels within the church. And Paul had to establish the theological nature of what the church was to be if it was going to be fruitful and flourish as it went forward in life. In the book of Ephesians, he wrote of the fact that there was a wall of division that Christ in his redemptive work has broken down. Left to ourselves, we seek our own. But when Christ comes into the picture, that changes. In the church of Christ, we discover that our faith and salvation is a common bond that transcends our differences. The progressives may have various solutions to othering that usually will include government regulation and tax increases. But for the church, the solution to othering is one anothering. And I think it's particularly true of the one another that we're looking at this morning in John's Gospel, chapter 13. It's the one another of love. It's pretty straightforward and simple, straight from the lips of Jesus in that 34th verse. Follow along, please, as we look. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men, all people, will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's pretty straightforward. It could be even boiled down to just a very simple, straightforward statement. Jesus calls us as his followers to love one another. Now, as we look at that 34th verse, we're going to break it up into some parts. You'll see them in the insert in your bulletin. In first in verse 34, we're going to look at the commandment to love, because there's a good deal of, of uh, nuance in here that I think it's helpful to understand. The commandment to love. Now, Jesus says that of the nature of this commandment, it is new. You see it there in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. Now, the word new is a word that can mean different things. For example, suppose that you bought a new Ford truck. I picked Ford intentionally. Now, this new Ford truck that you just bought is the current model year. Are the 2020s out yet? Probably they should be, but I'm not in the mood for a, or the mood, the market for a new Ford truck. Might be in the mood, I could get there, but, but uh, not in the market for a new Ford truck, but let's just assume the 2020s are out. So you have bought a new 2020 Ford truck. Now, that thing is new in time. It just rolled off the assembly line probably within the last month or so. The sum total of the miles on that truck are the miles that it took to drive it from the assembly line to a transport and off the transport to your dealer's lot. That's all the miles on it. It's even got the new Ford truck smell. Now that would be a new truck. Or your new Ford truck might be of a little different sort. Your new Ford truck is 10 years old. You bought it from somebody who had listed it for sale on Craigslist. You say, well, that's not new. Well, it's not new like the first Ford truck I described, but this one's new to you, so it is to you a new Ford truck. Newly acquired. Uh, to complicate things a little bit, you discover that your new-to-you Ford truck needs a new battery because the old battery won't hold a charge. Now, you don't want a 10-year-old battery in your new-to-you Ford truck, so you go to AutoZone and you buy a brand-new battery to replace the old, worn-out battery in your new-to-you Ford truck. Have I confused you yet? No, I've confused myself thoroughly. So let's move on from the Ford truck to just notice the fact that there are differences in the way we use the word new. One was new in time, just had not existed as a Ford truck until it had gone through the process of assembly at an assembly plant. The other one's been on the road for a while and has the miles to prove it. It's new in the sense that it's unfamiliar to you. It's new to you. Now, when Jesus says that he's giving a new commandment, what sense does he mean by new? He does not mean new in time. It's not like that first Ford truck that somehow just rolled out out of nowhere or off of uh, Jesus' mind as a thought that had never been expressed before. Because in the Old Testament, we find that the Old Testament Israelites were commanded to love their neighbors as they loved themselves. 
The grounding of this love ethic can be found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. It's not the only place in the Old Testament you find it, but in that particular uh, text we read these words, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus, one of those first books of the Bible that you memorized, right? And it doesn't stop there. The Lord Jesus himself cites that Leviticus 19, 18 text when in Matthew chapter 22 we read of the account where he is uh, accosted by the Pharisees and one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, uh, asked him the question, what's the greatest of the laws? What's the greatest commandment? There were some 613 from which Jesus could choose. This lawyer was not so curious about what the, the right commandment was. He just wanted to get Jesus caught in a bind. Jesus had the right answer, obviously. He said, here is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he said, and the second is like it. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then, just to get the clincher on it, he said, on these two hang the rest of the law and the prophets. In other words, these two are summative. They wrap it all up. So is the commandment to love new in the sense of never having been heard before? No. It was, it was central in the understanding of the sense of the Old Testament law as articulated specifically in Leviticus 19, 18 and elsewhere. So if it's not new in time... The difference here that Jesus was impressing upon the disciples was that it was new in the sense of unfamiliar. It was new to them in practical terms. It wasn't that they did not know their Old Testament law. But when it came down to the practical matters of life, it appeared that perhaps they had forgotten these things. This would be something that would be a new custom for them if they were to love as they ought to. Now, there are examples that we can find in the New Testament accounts of the disciples in their, their uh, life with Jesus that I think provide some good evidence of this. One that I will uh, reference uh, is in the background of the context of John 13 here, the passage that we're looking at this morning. We find references to this in a number of places in Luke 22, verses 24 and following. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. We find an episode. We also find one recorded in Luke 9:46, and another one yet in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. You can check those out uh, on your own later to see the details of what happened. But essentially, they all had a common element of dispute over who got to be the top dog in the kingdom. This was a dispute among the disciples. They may have had a common bond with the Lord Jesus. They may have had some of those, those elements that bind believers together, but they still had their own personal agendas, their personal goals that they wanted to pursue and uh, to gain advantage. And so they were squabbling about who got to be greatest in the kingdom. Uh, the interesting thing with the Matthew text is that uh, uh, two of the disciples got their mother to come and ask for a special favor. Uh, would it be okay if my boys could sit one on your right hand, the other on the left? I mean, that's, that's the prime seats, right? Every mother wants that for her sons, but do you see what that would, how that would play with the rest of the disciples? Uh, probably not make the, the two all that popular. 
It was the pursuit of their own particular agendas and hopes and dreams at the expense of the others. Now, I say that's in the background of John chapter 13, because uh, we'll be looking at the first verse of that in a moment, but early in that chapter, there's an event that takes place that is particularly instructive to these squabbling disciples. And it's the the well-known event of the washing of the disciples' feet. Jesus girded himself with a towel and went about and did the work of a servant. And he did that to model and illustrate for them what it means to be one who's not clamoring to be top dog, but instead one who knows the meaning of humble service. An expression, if you will, of love. In fact, that event sets up the third element of what it means, or the third feature of what it means to love as a new commandment. Because if you look back at verse 35, Jesus says, This new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That expression introduces a standard or an extent to which these disciples were to practice love. Now I want you to put a pin in that because I'm going to come back to it in a moment. But just notice that that's one of the dimensions of what is new here in this commandment. It's standard, or it's extent. More in a moment. Now, secondly, when we see that this is a new commandment, we learn something about its form. And that is, its form is that of a command. Now, I'm kind of talking in circles because I've given this heading, the commandment to love, and I say a commandment is a command. Duh. But I think it's important to recognize that this falls beyond the pale of good advice or a suggestion or uh, something you might want to think about. Jesus didn't put it in those terms. He said, this is one of those things that's a, a regulation for life. I'm saying, do this. It's not a request, not a suggestion. The fact that it's a command also helps us understand more of its nature, not as something that's a, a flitty, floaty feeling. You know how those things go. Things that are outside the realm of what we think is within our control. When a command is given, it's directed to the will. And that is very significant as we move forward to the fact of the substance of what this command entails. And that is in its substance, it calls for love for one another. The way this is constructed helps us understand that the substance of that command is given to us explicitly. Jesus says in verse 34, I give you a new commandment. What is that commandment? Let me explain. That is that you love one another, even as I have loved you. So it's a commandment. Now, we often think of love not as something that you do on command, but more something that is a kind of an emotional response of sorts. I don't like to pick on the young people, but I'm going to anyway. And I do that because we've all been there. But here's this young girl. And she sees that young, buff football player. The muscles ripple under his pads as he makes his way out onto the field. And he, uh, he has a great game. Game's over, and he 
comes over to the sidelines and, and she's there and he walks over to her and says, I'm so glad you came to this game tonight. She wilts in her shoes and thinks to herself, I'm in love. Now, lest this sound like picking on the young ladies, it works the other way too. Here's this young man who, uh, across a crowded room, sees this young lady and he says, my, she's attractive. And so he goes over and, and initiates a conversation with her. And she's just got an effusive, joyful personality. Just the kind of person that she makes you laugh and, and you just enjoy the conversation. And so as, he, as the conversation terminates and he, as he walks away, he thinks to himself, I'm in love. Am I, am I talking your language? We've all been there, haven't we? That's kind of the sentiment of emotion. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No. But it's really not the stuff of love that's going to endure. You see, when we talk about, there are other ways we talk about love too. I love chocolate, and chocolate loves me. (laughs) We love one another in perfect harmony. We'll make it a poem. The, the, the love that we think of in terms of preference, another way we use the word love. But the word that's used here, and the word that is the serious uh, understanding of what Jesus calls us to, not only here but throughout the Scripture, the kind of love that is attributed to God is a love that is marked by such things as choice or will. Hence, it can be commanded because it's an act of choice. It's a, it's a condition that is, uh, is based not on the attractiveness of an object, but rather understands the worth of the one who is loved. It inevitably will entail the sacrifice of one's self-interest if you're going to love somebody. If you're going to love somebody, it's going to cost you something. That's the kind of love that God has shown to us. Think of that very well-known verse in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Or that verse in Romans 5.8. But God commended or manifest His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Choice, love in spite of the unattractiveness of sin, and self-sacrifice. Those are the features, the serious features of the kind of love that we find here. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that passage that you often hear read at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind and not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When we start thinking about that word love, we realize that it is truly 
multidimensional, and it is a, uh, certainly a tall order that the Lord Jesus Christ gave. But you know, there's more to that verb as well, because it's not only love for a moment or love when it's convenient. He puts it in a tense of the verb that says, persist in your loving. Keep on loving. Don't stop loving. And we know that that's often where the challenge comes, isn't it? Because when I'm feeling pretty good, I'm more inclined to love. Or when you're treating me well, I'm more inclined to love. But when when things get a little rocky, then love can get strained and put to the test. If you want to think of it in a a comparative image, think of love in terms of, of marriage. You know, there's marriage that's day in and day out, isn't there? And there's love in marriage that is day in, day out, 24-7. That's kind of the the moving picture of love. Now, on the fireplace mantle, or maybe on a table in your living room, you have love in a still shot. It was probably taken on your wedding day. And you're both dressed up in your wedding finery, and you both have broad smiles on your face, because love is so prominent in the air. And those pictures are good things. They remind us of our commitments to one another. But the test of love is not in the still shot. The test of love is in the moving picture, day to day to day, 24-7. Jesus said to these disciples, this commandment I'm giving you is that you persist in loving as I have persisted in loving you. Now, as we continue in verse 34, we turn our attention second to the standard of love. If we looked at the commandment of love, now we turn to the standard of love. And this is where that pin that we put in a little while ago uh, needs to come into the foreground. The standard of love. Love one another even as I have loved you. And there's the standard. It's a theological premise. The theological premise is this, God loves you. It's one of his attributes. It's one of his most precious attributes because it it, it grounds his compassion and his mercy and and his grace toward us. It's one of the the great treasures of the gospel. That that John 3.16 verse that we learned so early brings us the the gospel in a nutshell, and it begins with the love of God and how it was expressed in action. Not only is it that God is love, which speaks of his person and his own character, but it's that God loves you, which puts his love into action in direct and personal ways. It's the love that brought salvation. It's also the love that you experience day to day as you follow Jesus and as you, you, uh, you have those moments of burden and need that you need to cast upon him because you know that he loves you and he welcomes those burdens uh, as you cast them upon him for relief. The theologian Karl Barth, a theologian, by the way, that I don't have a whole lot of, of in common with, but he had something this when he, when he said this. He was asked about the most profound theological truth he knew. And his answer was this. Jesus loves me, this I know. 
for the Bible tells me so. We think of that as a children's song very often, but that's not only for children. That's for all of us. Because we need the reassurance that Jesus loves us. That's a theological premise. It's endemic in his character and expressed in his ways. So the standard is expressed in that theological premise, but the extent of that love is also important for us to consider. Jesus says that we are to love as he loved, and so that raises the question, well, how did Jesus love? Now, if you'll just uh, look back uh, to the beginning of this 13th chapter, I mentioned this a few moments ago. In the first verse, we get a statement about Jesus' love for these disciples as they had gathered in that upper room for the Last Supper as we know it. In that 13th chapter, verse 1, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, now notice, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, my Bible has a marginal translation for that expression, to the end. It says, utterly. And what is, tr- is being emphasized in that expression is hard to capture in English, perhaps, but it just simply says there was no boundary upon Jesus' love for these disciples. And that's the setup for that incident of the washing of the feet that I mentioned a moment ago. Having loved these disciples... A look at his past relationship with them over the whole time of his earthly ministry. He loved them without boundary, without limit, utterly. That's a tall order, isn't it? And I suppose it's part of what could cause us to think, I can't love like that. Well, there's more. Just turn over a page or two to chapter 15. And look with me at verse 13. Actually, we'll start at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Does that sound familiar? Exact same thing he said in 1334. But now look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, that was not just an emptily spoken ideal, because the Lord Jesus knew full well what was coming within hours. Within hours of when he uttered those words, he was going to be laying down his life, nailed to a cross. And so when we understand that Jesus said, love as I have loved you, he's tying that love in its expression to the cross. Love is defined by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he gave himself for you and me on that tree. And you and I say, well, that kind of love isn't in me. And we're right. That kind of love is not in us. So did Jesus just give us a a standard that we cannot reach? Is, is it the kind of thing that he says, I'm going to make your life miserable. I'm going to, I'm going to here, here, you can only reach this high. I'm going to set the bar here. You can't get it. No. 
as Jesus loves us, and as Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, indwells and fills us, we have the capacity to love one another. Last week, Pastor Bill reminded us, instructed us, that our theology precedes our prayer. I would add that with this week, our theology also precedes our love. When we are understanding the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we understand the power that he has provided through his Holy Spirit. As it says in Romans 5, 5, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, then we can love as Jesus commanded us to. So we have the command to love, We have the substance of that command. And finally, the impact of love in verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The impact of love is at least twofold. The impact that Jesus emphasizes here is its evangelistic or its apologetic impact. Now, when we talk about evangelism, we're talking about sharing the good news. And it's that which makes our claim of the good news credible, particularly to unbelievers who wonder if this thing is really true and if it's any way meaningful. That's the evangelistic impact. The apologetic aspect of it is that of, uh, apologetics means the defense of the faith. Is the defense, is the faith in fact true and reliable? And Francis Schaeffer, the uh, apologist and theologian, writes of this when he says, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. Woo. That's significant, isn't it? But not only does this love have an evangelistic and an apologetic impact, it also has a personal impact on you and me individually. Because this impact is seen not only in our evangelistic witness, but it also serves to confirm for ourselves the reality of our own faith. How do you know that you're indeed a Christian? Those, when those times of doubt begin to creep in, what are the evidences to which you could point to say, well, th- these are corroborations that indeed I love the Lord and I'm a follower of Jesus, that I'm a disciple as these early disciples were. Same John who wrote this gospel wrote in his first epistle these words in chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Or if we could paraphrase that, We know that we are truly believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we are truly saved 
because we love the brothers and the sisters. The fact that we have love for one another creates assurance in our own hearts that our faith is indeed genuine. So thinking about the impact, you can think about it both in kind of a negative way and in a positive way. The great Bible teacher G. Campbell Morgan put it this way, somewhat negatively, when he said, the measure in which Christian people fail in love to each other is the measure in which the world does not believe them or their Christianity. It's the final test of discipleship, according to Jesus. Or on the more positive side, Francis Schaeffer again put it more positively, love is the final apologetic, the final defense of the faith. So when Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, that you'll love one another as I have loved you, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you'll love one another. What's, what's it all add up to? This is a new commandment as it is explained with new clarity. Just no missing the point, is there? It's enforced by new motives and obligations. It's illustrated by a new example. It's obeyed in a new manner. And it's carried to a new extent. In short, it's our marching orders. It's striking to me that the disciples got it finally. When I look at the, uh, the text of New Testament epistles, particularly those written by the disciples, I always like to think, what do I see in what they write that somehow ties back into their, their time with Jesus on this earth? And in the case of Peter and John, I think we have some rather telling evidence. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring Word of God. Or listen to John in his first epistle. Chapter 3, verse 11, he writes, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And in verse 23 of that same third chapter, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. And finally, in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Will you join me in prayer? And worship team, please come. 
Our Father, these are tall words as we hear from our Lord Jesus on the priority of love. And we know that he gave us an example of what that kind of love looks like as he hung on a cross. Not for any wrong that he had done, but that we might have the gracious gift of salvation. The removal of our sin guilt. The prospect of an eternal life with you. Lord, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would teach us to love as Jesus loves. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen.